Welcome to the Jongets Games Podcast. In this episode, you'll be hearing the audio from the questions and answers vlog that was recorded live in September of 2021, and I did go through and edit it down to what I thought were just the most relevant questions. Now, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. If you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this, then I do hope that you would consider directly supporting that campaign, and you can learn more about it by going to patreon.com slash jongetsgames. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as a comment on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Well, the first question coming in is from Chrissy, and they asked, my usual question, what have you backed since the last vlog? Um, honestly, I haven't backed anything. I, I just looked it up on Kickstarter. Uh, I have done a remind me button for um, at least one thing. Actually, there were two things. Uh, one was Age of Trains, which is a pick up and deliver train type game, but then they canceled the Kickstarter campaign. They're going to relaunch it, so I guess that reminded me isn't going to work. Uh, and then the other one is for a, a trick-taking game called Bridge City Poker. Um, I when I first heard about it, I didn't really have the time to like dig into it and see if I wanted it. So I just clicked remind me and I figured, you know, in a week or two, it'll remind me and then I will actually make the time to investigate if I want to actually back that one because at first glance, it looked pretty neat, but I'm also trying to buy less games. <laughs> uh, so that, I think that leads us on to Brian D's question. Um, do you generally back Kickstarters? And if so, um, have you seen Witcher Old World? Um, yes, I, I've backed many Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, if I look back here. Is Kickstarter going to tell me just how many I've done? Uh, yeah, it says I've backed 148 projects <laughs> over the last decade or so. So I've backed a lot of Kickstarter projects, although a lot less over the last few years. I was one of those people who backed like multiple things a month um, for a couple of years back in like 2012, 2013, around then. So that's when a big part of that number happened. Um, I have not uh, backed the Witcher Old World game. I don't really know anything about it. Um, I liked the Witcher show, um, and I read a couple of the Witcher books after I watched the show because I enjoyed the show so much. I kind of tailed off on them. Um, I enjoyed the Witcher board game that came out through Fantasy Flight like five years ago. I, I only played it once, but I liked what I saw there. Um, so I'm not against Witcher-type stuff. I just uh, am not actually familiar with that one. Let's move on to Jeffrey Kramer. Uh, they said, learning through your tutorials is best. You've gotten me into a ton of games that I thought I would hate through your tutorials. I find myself totally invested too. I care if we win. Uh, that's great to hear. <laughs> that's, you know, the idea. And I know that's part of the reason why a lot of people were bummed when I stopped doing full playthroughs for every single one of the tutorials that I make. I still try to do full playthroughs whenever I feasibly can with my schedule and the overall complexity of the game. Um, and I do try to, you know, show an interesting arc. Uh, you know, I I don't play the most authentic games. Like, I definitely stack decks and re-roll dice until I get to the value that I want um, somewhat often, <laughs> not to pull the curtain back, but I usually try to show games uh, being competitive. And um, honestly, you know, uh, tutorial videos like that are what I like. Uh, when I first started making videos, I made reviews in a way that I wanted to see in the, uh, out there. And when I started making playthroughs, not that long afterwards, I made a type that matched the kind that I wanted to see out there. Um, so, Fortunately, I'm not alone. Other people enjoy that as well, and I'm glad you're one of them. Uh, Timo says, I heard you recently mention that you used to be really into Eclipse. Can you talk about your experiences playing it? I got Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy within the last six months, and I really love it. Um, yeah, <laughs> Eclipse was a game I was so excited about when it first came out. In fact, um, I remember reading like every designer diary about the game before it came out. I was actively following it for six to 
I don't know, eight months or something like that before the game released. And I uh, had it on pre-order and I got, you know, one of the first uh, printings copies. Um, I then proceeded to play it over 10 times over the course of a couple of years with my friends. Um, back then, we played a lot more kind of epic style games and I was more of an omni gamer back then. Um, shortly thereafter in the 20 teens, I really uh, focused in on Euro games and kind of went away from Eclipse to a certain extent. Um, I just loved the Euro-y backbone to Eclipse of, you know, resource management and acquisition and engine building. Um, and I liked that as you expanded out, it got a lot harder to maintain your empire. So it got more expensive. So it wasn't just a game where like you expand, expand, and then you just squeeze everybody out. I mean, you should probably try to do that because you get points for expanding, but it gets harder and harder to make maintain. And if you expand too far, then people might be able to actually cut in on you because you're spending too much time, um, you know, keeping this empire up. I will say that um, part of the reason I stopped playing Eclipse, the first version, um, shortly before the first expansion came out, was because I was a little burned out on plasma missiles. I, I'm not going to go into the specifics, but that one mechanic um, started to rub me wrong after playing the game like 10 plus times. I definitely was on the camp that thought that it it um, was detrimental to the overall vibe of the game. It could be kind of degenerate. And honestly, that tiny thing is part of the reason why I bought the second edition of the game, because they changed plasma missiles a little bit. They added an energy cost to them, which um, is something that I was desperately wanting to have happen. And then they also integrated some stuff from some expansions in the second version of the game and uh, streamlined some things, made the game one round less. And I've actually only played it once so far, and I played it on Tabletop Simulator, but I do own a copy of it. I, I sold my first edition Eclipse many years ago when I thought I was going to get back around to playing it. Um, and then in a moment of retail therapy in the middle of the pandemic, right after the shut up and sit down, uh, Second Dawn video came out, I decided to pick up a copy of the Second Dawn. Uh, so I own it and I am looking forward to trying this one um, in real life when it makes sense again, uh, because, you know, the game system really is great. And you do throw a lot of dice. There is certainly some randomness there, but it is a very epic feeling game. And I've just enjoyed playing it in the past. And, um, you know, maybe it was a moment of weakness <laughs> getting the new version. I don't know. But um, right now, I'm happy that I have it. And I'm looking forward to trying it uh, more in the future, uh, because I liked my one new experience with the uh, new game. Um, although playing it in Tabletop Simulator is not the ideal way to do it. You know, a big part of these epic games that take like five plus hours to play is being around the table with your friends and, you know, sharing snacks and, you know, just having that environment. And even though I was playing on Tabletop Simulator with my friends, it just, it felt a little bit more isolated. And the downtime that can happen in that game was more exacerbated, just sitting there staring at a computer instead of, you know, hanging out with a group of people around the table. Jeffrey asks, is there a specific game that is constantly on the cusp of getting a tutorial, but just never seems to win the poll? Um, Airland and Sea was that game for a long time until about a month ago when it finally won. I think it was on the Patreon poll for like, I don't know, eight times, something like that. It just kept missing. Um, at this point now, I'm not sure what the new one would be for that. Yeah, Airland and Sea kept coming in at third place, third place, third place. It finally came in second place, so it got a video made. Um, thinking back on the list, uh, I haven't actually seen that. I'm going to be sending out a new poll probably in a day or two. Uh, if I'd done that before this, I'd be, have a better answer to your question. Uh, but there certainly are some that have a reasonable amount of support. I know Sheepy Time has been on there for a few months now, never quite getting up to the uh, the spot where it actually wins, but still getting a decent amount of votes. Um, I think uh, Card Rails has been on there and doing relatively well for a few months as well, but never quite getting up there to the top. Uh, Jeffrey asks, is there a chance we get a tutorial playthrough for Furnace? Um, yeah, there's a chance. Um, I love that game. <laughs> it is so good. I don't own a copy of it just yet. Um, I'm planning on getting a copy. Um, actually, the publisher reached out to me 
at the beginning of this year, like in February or so, I think around around the time when I put out a good games vlog where I talked about loving it, they reached out to me about uh, maybe sending me a copy and maybe doing a sponsored tutorial for it. And um, that never actually happened. You know, a lot's happened over the course of this year with the pandemic and the shipping crisis and everything. So I'm not, you know, there's no ill will there or anything, but um, it seemed like something was maybe going to happen. And now, Right now, it doesn't seem like anything in particular is, but um, if you know they're not going to send me a copy, I think I'm going to buy a copy because this game is great, and I really don't mind purchasing copies for our collection. And if I do that, then I think there's a reasonable chance it might uh, win a Patreon poll to have a video main. Um, a couple things have to happen there first. Um, I know it just got released, I think, at Gen Con uh, through Arcane Wonders. Um, Arcane Wonders wasn't the, the publisher that reached out to me. It was the original publisher. So I don't know. Something could happen. Um, I've never done anything sponsored for Arcane Wonders though. So uh, I'm not necessarily holding my breath for a sponsored video, but it's possible a Patreon one might happen. All right. Brian asks, do you have any dexterity games that you can't get enough of? Um, yes. I mean, the first one that pops into my head is Crokinole. Um, that is an amazing game, a dexterity game where you're flicking discs on the circular board. It's either one versus one or two versus two, at least with the board that I have. Um, and I've been playing Crokinole for about a decade, although honestly, I haven't played it in like a year or two. Uh, we remodeled our gaming room last Thanksgiving, and we had the coconut board hanging on the wall. We took it off to paint the room, and I still haven't gotten around to actually hanging it. I thought about doing it last weekend, but I got sidetracked. It's literally right there in my closet, which is a real shame because I have a uh, custom board, uh, a Halinsky board, um, uh, that I bought, I don't know, in 2000. 12, I think. So I've had that for about nine years. Uh, and it's just an amazing dexterity game. Um, I'm sure there are some others that I could think of if I really crunched on it, but Crokinole is the best dexterity game that I think I've ever played. Next up, we have Jonathan. Uh, hi, Jonathan. I'm also Jonathan. <laughs> uh, so next up, Jonathan says, I really enjoy looking, uh, listening to your channel. Are you working on any more rulebooks after Darwin's journey? Um, Yes, but not in the same way as Darwin's Journey. Uh, Darwin's Journey, I literally started from scratch, like a blank Google Doc, which was very intimidating, <laughs> as I can imagine, uh, as I, I imagine you could imagine. Um, I've done quite a bit of proofing work for many different publishers at this point. Um, I have one that I'm planning on working on next week, um, where the rulebook has been written, but they don't think it's very good. I haven't actually written it, uh, read it yet, but um, they think it needs a bunch of work, so I'm going to dig into that one as well. Um, and I've done quite a bit of proofing work for Skybound Games, where they write the rulebook, and then I do proofing work to just, you know, try to check examples and um, let them know when certain things aren't maybe clear enough. Um, they write their rulebooks very well. I just come in and, you know, point out different uh, weak points. Um, that was part of the reason why the Valor and Villainy Ludwig's Labyrinth project took me so long. It's because um, I actually did proofing development work for the rulebook and the scenario book for Ludwig's Labyrinth on top of doing the actual sponsored tutorial. So that was like a week of just Ludwig's Labyrinth, just like living inside that game because of the rulebook development that I did, as well as the actual video that I did, which took a decent amount of time. Um, uh, thinking back for other things, um, yeah, there's just a, a couple of other uh, rulebooks that I've been uh, perusing. Uh, right now, I don't have a ton of that work coming in, but it's definitely something that I'm trying to, I don't know, 
if push is the right word, but it's something I, I enjoy doing, and I'm hoping that more publishers are interested in, you know, contracting me for that. Um, I just, like I said, booked one last week, so that was really great. That's for a publisher I haven't worked with before, um, but there's probably about four or five publishers I've done repeat work for. Um, actually just looked at the amount of hours that I've spent on rulebook work over this last year, and it's sizable. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but um, the revenue that I've got from rulebook development is um, about the same amount of revenue as I made for all of John Gates games like three years ago. And that's pretty exciting for me, honestly, because I really enjoy um, uh, diving into that part even more. Uh, Gav Kenny says, is there a Kickstarter coming up over the next three months that you really like the look of the game? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> you see me looking off the camera right now. Uh, I actually have City of the Great Machine right here off camera. Let me go ahead and show it completely. It's got a whole bunch of stuff. It's got a, a, um, a cyberpunk, no, not cyberpunk, a steampunk theme. Um, and it's a one versus many style game. It's kind of like not alone with more stuff going on. Um, we're either revolutionaries trying to take down the machine or you're the great machine trying to enact your master plan. And it's great. It's got these great components. And um, it was a, a beast to record because I was trying to play as the great machine trying to stop the revolutionaries and the revolutionaries trying to stop the great machine, which is very hard to simulate when I'm, you know, pulling all of the strings. Uh, but it's a neat looking game overall. And that one's going to be going up on Kickstarter next week, actually. Um, looking forward to some others. Union Station is going up on Kickstarter in like three weeks. That's a cube rail style game that's uh, designed by a friend of mine, Travis Hill, and being published by another friend of mine uh, uh, as part of the uh, New Mill Publishing. Um, I haven't played that one yet, but it looks neat and I'm just excited for all these cube rails games. And I'm also excited to see people that I like being successful. So that's, that's certainly part of it as well. Next up, we have Reed. Uh, they say, I have been trying to get a hold of Anno 1800 ever since I saw your playthrough and high praise of it, but I still uh, it's still not available here. Have you gotten cold on that game at all? Um, <laughs> I hate to say it, but no, <laughs> I've not gotten cold on that game at all. I still love it. Uh, I played it a couple times just in the last month or so. Um, I, it's kind of crazy how long it's taking for the English version to get brought, a broader release, but I will say that I bought my version. It's a German copy. I bought it about a year ago now, maybe 10 months ago. And the only thing um, in the game that has um, text on it is the rulebook. So I've had no problem playing the game because all of the components, like literally all of them that you play with are language independent. So if you really want this game, then you know maybe pick up a German version. It's probably easier to get that now than waiting around. I have no idea when the US version is actually going to come out. And there are English translations of things on BGG. In fact, I made a custom player aid and posted it up on BGG that I used to teach the game. And I think it it helps. <laughs> I'm a fan of it, but I also made it. Um, yeah, I played this game um, about three weeks ago. Uh, it was a four-player game, and it went over great. And then I played it about, I guess, once about three weeks ago, and then once again about three, two or three months ago. Every time I get, play the game, I love it. Um, I will say that every time I play the game recently, I do see the flaws that I talked about, um, in particular in the uh, top 10 list I did for last year, where I said that it was my favorite game, but it was flawed. Um, and I'm so excited for the expansion for that game. <laughs> I don't have it yet, but it seems like everything I've heard about the expansion for Anno seems like it's going to make a game that I adore even better. Um, so yeah, um, Anno's great. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to uh, its future. I hope it has a bright future. And I hope you get a copy of it and can enjoy it at some point in the future as well. I don't want to dissuade you from playing the game as it is because it's great out of the box. But I played it like eight or nine times now, I think. And I, I definitely am looking forward to the additions that the expansion is going to add on. And I think 
honestly, I fully expect the Anno expansion to turn Anno into what the Norwegian expansion did for A Feast for Odin, where it went from a game I love into one of the best games I've ever played. Um, because I do love Anno, but, you know, anyway, <laughs> I'm rambling now. All right, uh, Daniel says, what made you start with tutorials on the channel? Would some of the reasons be that most rulebooks are confusing for the games they try to introduce, friends not understanding the game, etc.? Uh, no, uh, actually, those aren't the reasons at all. <laughs> if I'm being honest, the reason I started making um, uh, my playthrough tutorials was I had a moment where I thought, how hard can it be to make these videos? Uh, I loved watching playthroughs. This is back, I guess, in 2014, and I'd loved playthroughs for a long time. One of my favorite channels was MeWe, who would put out one video every like two months, but I loved every one of its videos. Um, and then I watched, you know, most of the videos that Rada would put out at that time, and honestly, I still do. Um, and I remember um, feeling like, I wish more of these videos were out here. I just felt like almost no one was making the type of video, the type of playthrough video that I wanted. It was essentially Rado and MeWe, and I wanted more of that content out there. And I already had a YouTube channel where I was making reviews. So I already had, I knew like kind of how to edit things and I knew all that rough framework. And yeah, I was just sitting there one day. I was just like, it can't be that hard, right? Well, you know, I'll find out if I try. So I got out a copy of Progress. I think, yeah, it was called Progress. I'd never played it before. I read the rules and I just turned my phone on because I was using my phone as a camera back then and recorded a video in the way that I wanted, uh, specifically more of a MeWe type where I really went into the nitty gritty. And I proceeded to find that yeah, it is actually pretty darn hard to make these. Uh, it's really easy to make mistakes, and it takes a long time to make it, especially in the MeWe style. I totally understand why Rado does his type, where he, you know, goes through and, and for the first most of the years he's been making content, he didn't edit at all. I think he does tiny bits of editing now, but um, I totally get it because the time commitment to do it where you make very few mistakes and you really consider everything instead of just kind of doing it live, it just exacerbates and balloons these projects up into a huge amount of my time. Uh, fortunately for me, I found over the years that I, I, I don't dislike that. In fact, I, I quite like putting out um, the, the product, I guess the videos that I put out here. Um, and I feel like adding it into the overall content space is going to be good um, because, again, I, I like this kind of video. And over the years, more and more people have been putting out playthrough videos in a way that I like. Um, you know, in addition to Rado, who I still uh, still watch, there's also uh, Slicker Drips and Before You Play. Um, Before You Play makes excellent videos. Um, they're really targeted on the, the kind of stuff I enjoy in particular because they actually have multiple people playing the game. So you see, like, a more authentic full game playthrough instead of, you know, a person trying to play every single angle, which is, of course, what I do as well. Um, Chrissy asks, do you have any particular secondhand game sites that you purchase from more than others, or do you typically purchase new direct from vendors? Um, in general, I purchase direct from vendors, but when I do purchase things secondhand, it's essentially always the Board Game Geek Marketplace. Um, I've purchased several games from there, uh, especially uh, recently, although sometimes those end up being essentially new as well. Uh, but it's just a great way to buy and sell games <laughs> back and forth with people on BGG. Like, uh, if there's a game I really want and it's, like, not in any um, online game stores, then I usually check the marketplace and maybe see if I can purchase something there. Um, I highly recommend the Board Game Geek Marketplace. It really does work out well, at least um, from my experience with it. Alex asks, what tools slash lists do you look for um, in your game's radar vlog? I'm always interested in finding new games. Um, well, technically, there is an RSS feed that BoardGameGeek puts out um, for just every new entry 
period, that gets added to BoardGameGeek. And so there is a way to go in there and kind of customize the RSS feed to just the new board games that are added. And I took that feed and I plugged it into an RSS reader. And then every <laughs> few weeks, I go into the RSS reader and I just check all of the new entries and see if anything piques my interest. Um, I will try to remember to put a link to the RSS feed down below in the description. Um, if I forgot to do that, then please remind me in a comment uh, because it can be a little bit hard to dig up and I have no problem sharing that. Uh, Truck Driving Gamer says, do you plan on getting Frosthaven? Uh, I don't. And Frosthaven looks great. But here's the thing. I own Gloomhaven. It's actually right over there. I can see it on my shelf to the side of me. Uh, we played it. Uh, I played it with friends. We played it like 32 times, which is a big commitment considering every one of those scenarios is like an hour and a half long. So that's a ton of hours spent in Gloomhaven loving it, but we never even got remotely close to finishing the campaign. And then, you know, people kind of, you know, went on. Some people had kids, some people got new jobs, and it just, it got harder and harder to keep the campaign going, and we haven't really played it in a few years now. Uh, because of that, I just don't see a reason to get Frosthaven. I think the game looks amazing. I mean, Gloomhaven that it's based off of is amazing, and I love the idea of crafting and town building in Frosthaven, but I just don't see a situation where I'd actually have a consistent group to be able to play through it. Um, I own of the Lion as well, and that's one that I still have an inkling that I would love to play through that campaign because it's, I think, more like 15 or so scenarios instead of playing like 60. Uh, I think that's much more doable, although I haven't actually made that happen yet. Uh, Jinrei says, I recently got an online spat in regard uh, that you used a gender-neutral gender pronoun in Chronicles of Junagor, and my question is this, do you get any flack on that subject? Um... Very rarely. Uh, honestly, being gender neutral in my videos has been something I've been trying to do for a long time, many years. I can't remember when I exactly started doing that, but maybe like five, four or five years ago. Um, it just seemed silly to gender characters when I am all of the characters and I'm pulling all of the strings. Uh, and I know that in, you know, a fantasy type adventure game like Chronicles of Junagor, you could see that like, you know, you could make expectations for what the supposed gender of this fantasy being is. But I don't know. I just think it makes more sense just to stick to they's when it comes to my uh, uh, playthroughs. Uh, you know, there's me, there's the me, I, because you know, we play through um, various things. And every other player, it, it, it's a they. Like, they don't exist. I'm controlling all of the players. So why uh, should uh, pronouns be associated with any of those? I think it's... Um, kind of silly. Um, occasionally, a comment comes through and, um, you know, nowadays I have comments uh, moderating on and I just, you know, just make those go away. I just don't see how that's adding to anything and I don't understand why people are upset about that kind of thing, but I just, uh, it happens very rarely. I guess that's the way to put it. Like that whole thing happened, which was relatively small overall, and maybe one or two other videos, uh, one or two other comments over the last many years. It's it's a very minor thing, um, which makes sense to me because, you know, <laughs> I'm talking about non-existent beings. So they, they can certainly be theys. With a follow-up, it was kind of weird with you referring to me as them last Monday with in the Good Games log, Cascadia, but hey, I'm not looking into that too much, and there's no way I'll get attached to that. I mean, yeah, that's also part of it, and I've, I've tried to do that as well in these videos, because 
I have no idea <laughs> what your, uh, you know, preferred pronouns are or, you know, gender. I know nothing about you except the uh, username that you have. So, you know, it seems silly for me to apply any um, hypothetical things beyond they. It's just a nice catch-all. I honestly really like it as a word. Um, like, I use that through all of the rule books because it just makes sense. It just really makes sense to me. Um, and it's something I've tried to get into my nomenclature. Because I think way back when, when I first started making um, uh, content, and honestly, just, you know, not even making content, just talking with people and whatnot. It was very easy to default to um, he and him and all that kind of stuff when, you know, talking about playing with somebody else and just like this assumption that my opponent is is a he or a him. And, you know, that's not something I've wanted to do. So fortunately, I've, I'm in a point now where I'm, I've long since, I think, made that habit um, in my speech pattern and I'm, I'm pretty happy for it. Um, honestly, in life, not even about board games, I've started to just use a they all the time because, I don't know, it's just so flexible. <laughs> I, I don't see a reason not to. Next up, we have Jonathan uh, referring to a previous question. We've got a clarification. Uh, they say, sorry, I meant genres that you have been enjoying that have been involved. Um, previously, Jonathan asked um, what I'm looking for on the horizon after going from loving Euros to now loving trains. I still love Euros. Um, so what is your current favorite genre and what do you seem to be gravitating towards? Well, I mean, it's really hard not to say that um, cube rail type games is my current favorite genre. I mean, maybe that's just because of the novelty of it still, uh, but that's the thing that I'm really pushing. And I still, like I said, um, love Euro games. But as far as like raw excitement, I'm finding myself more excited by the strangeness that comes specifically from cube rail style games and whatnot. And, and I guess to abstract that out even more, um, my current favorite thing is shared incentives. Um, that's something that most of these train slash cube rail style games have going on where multiple players share incentives together. So like if I do this, it helps that person, but it hurts that person. Or if I do that, it helps that person or that person. So you have to consider shared interests that you have, like with your actions. It's not just you on your own little island trying to make a big castle and that person's on their own island trying to make a big castle. Everything is interconnected. And I really enjoy that part. Um, I will say one of the big reasons why I'm kind of excited about these right now is because they tend to be very elegant as well. And um, it seems like the... Um, the path of Euros for the last many years has been towards going away from elegance. And what I mean by that is uh, an elegant design to me is a design that um, doesn't have like lots of exceptions or if then else type statements in the rule book. It's a design that has a succinct rule set that just works and does what it says instead of having, you know, um, lots of bonus actions and free actions and extra phases that happen only every third round and, you know, uh, special resources that uh, interact with this and that, but not the other thing, those kind of things. Like, I'm not saying those are bad, um, not at all. In fact, I do enjoy those games quite a bit, but I really do enjoy the elegance of these train games where, like, you can teach the game in, like, less than 10 minutes and then you play the game and it takes 60 minutes. So you could, like, teach and play two full uh, Cube Rails games and have these two wonderful experiences where you spend almost your entire time playing the game instead of learning the game um, in the same amount of time as you would um, playing, not even uh, teaching and playing something longer. Like, it seems like the typical midweight Euro has like a 30 plus minute teach. And, um, you know, as the rules teacher, I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, uh, shying away from that a little bit. Uh, you know, I say that and then like I get super excited about <laughs> those weight of games that are coming out still. So my excitement is certainly still there. But I guess looking towards the horizon, I've been just focusing a lot more on games that seem elegant. Uh, the games that I have been acquiring recently, for the most part, have been relatively short. Um, so I guess that's another way to think about it, not just like cube rail slash trains in general, but I've been gravitating towards shorter games overall, like the idea of playing 
multiple 45 to 60 minute games instead of sitting down to like a two to three hour game. Um, and those two to three hour games were what I used to gravitate towards. And now I keep getting these games and uh, some of my friends are like, wait, <laughs> I'd come to, uh, you know, they might come over and these are the stack of games I want to play. And it's like, all of these are like 45 to 60 minutes. And they're like, well, you know, what about like, you know, something longer and deeper and more complex? And I'm totally down to play those games, but I find myself currently drawn towards quick teaching games that have interesting gameplay. And um, I think a big part of that was the train games that also veered me into other games of that ilk as well. Dice Matrix asks, how is the game rules writing going? Um, I'm making a homebrew game. Any suggestions on making a good rule book? Um, yeah, so two questions there. Um, to quickly answer the first one, um, it's going great. Um, more and more publishers are working with me to proof their rule books and potentially even write them. Um, I, I've only written from scratch one rule book at this point, although there was another rule book that I started from scratch building an outline for them. They essentially asked me to build the structure of the rule book and then they grabbed that and then wrote the rule book itself. Um, because sometimes when I'm proofing these rule books, um, I come back and I say, you know, this section should be down here and this section should be up there and like this should be inverted and that kind of thing and that can be kind of tough uh, depending on what stage of the rulebook process is done like if a bunch of the graphics work is done and i'm saying you really should switch these areas that's going to that's going to mean that a lot of the graphics work was you know essentially wasted so um i guess that leads me right into the second question i mean the the main thing to start with making your own rulebook is a good backbone and i start with just an outline you know i, I just open up google docs and i i start with the the high level stuff like you know um, introduction, next up, setup, after that, maybe overview, after that, I start to think about, you know, what, what is your game like, and, and how do you actually want to present it, but I don't write any of the rules, I just talk about the things that I'm, I just put the headers down for the things that I probably want to do, uh, for example, with Darwin's Journey, um, in that one, um, I wanted to talk about how the worker placement worked as a function and the penalties worked before I got into all of the other nitty gritty. I also want to explain the overall flow of an entire round before I got into the action part of the round because holy cow, there are so many actions in that game. Uh, but then Darwin's Journey is a good example in addition to that because there's like 30 plus unique actions that you take in that game all with their own icons. So then I wrote all of those into the outline and I just started moving them around, trying to cluster them with others that seem to make sense. Um, you know, are these like this or are those like that? What's the, what's a good flow? And then also, this is a really big part of it, um, in my opinion, is making sure the rules flow never leaves you dangling. And, and what I mean by that is I, you, don't, you don't want a situation where you read a paragraph, you learned about something that related to something else that you don't know about just yet. So that means I usually start by teaching the simplest stuff. So if it's a game where you like move things around, then talk about moving before you talk about the penalty for moving or even the cost for moving. Just talk about how the movement works um, before you get into something else. Uh, I see many rule books that like start off by saying, you know, um, during the action phase, you take one main action. You can also take a free action. Here are the free actions. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Free actions later because, you know, free actions are often like, you know, take a take a bonus movement or grab an upgrade tile from the display or something like that. But you don't know what an upgrade tile is and you don't even understand how movement works. So why are you telling me about to take a bonus move as a free action. So that's just kind of a general purpose idea where I try to make sure that um, that it just flows, that you're never sitting there saying, 
what's that? I have no idea what that is. Even though like on the next page you're about to learn about it, I think those should be swapped. And sometimes there's a chicken and egg uh, problem here where one section refers to another thing, but if you swap them, well, that refers to this other one there. And then it's just impossible to not have any danglers. And, you know, when those situations happen, you just, um, you just roll with it. <laughs> and maybe you say, you know, you know, explained in the next paragraph or something like that. Um, anyway, I'm going into a lot of detail here, but it really is important to write that overall outline before you write any specifics. And then the next level, in my opinion, is to write a bare bones set of rules for your game, like all of the rules, but just no flurry, no, no fancy text. Don't worry about the grammar. Just like put it in as if you were telling a computer how to write your game. And then from that point on, you can actually start to flesh it out into a broader thing. Uh, because when it's nice and succinct, that's when you can tell if you missed something or um, you start writing out and you're like, oh, wait a second, this really should be after that because I forgot how it interacted with this other thing. And that can just be easier to do when there's less clutter. Um, <laughs> I keep saying things, but there's one last thing that I want to recommend. And that is, um, first of all, using Google Docs, that's what I use, um, and use the headers. Um, there's this thing where you can um, specify headers for your different things. I think it's like command one, two, three, or four. Um, on a Mac, it might be something different on PCs, or it might be something different on Macs as well. But the, this is important because when you do that in Google Docs, it builds a table of contents for you on the side, and you can click on it to snap to that header. Uh, so instead of just like changing the size of the font or making it bold, change it to a header and then have the subheaders, like start with the top ones, like setup and introduction and um, you know whatever game flow, have those be header one. And then underneath that, have it be header two and then header three, four or five, like go into sub things because then you can easily glance over at the table of contents and get a, a broad scope idea of where things are. This has saved my butt in Darwin's journey because um, that rule book is like 64 pages long in Google Docs now. And there's many times where I have to jump back to something and it's so much easier to go to that table of contents and click on a thing and it just zooms me right to where it was instead of trying to sift through all of those pages. Anyway, that was a way longer answer than I think you were expecting. Hopefully you found that interesting. Hopefully other people found that interesting as well. I've been doing a lot of rule book stuff and so obviously um, my brain has a lot of uh, things to say about it. Next up we have Chrissy and they ask, when working on rule books like Darwin's Journey, are they ongoing commitments? In other words, are you still prompted to make edits as the game is playtested, or is it a one-time event? Um, well, Darwin's Journey is a, a bit unique for me right now. I mean, maybe not unique into the future, but that has definitely been an ongoing uh, commitment where I won't do anything for it for like a month and a half, and then some emails come in from Thundergriff with some edits and some new versions, and then suddenly I'm investing, you know, 5, 10, 15 hours into it with edits and whatnot, and then I pass the ball back to them, and then maybe I don't hear anything for another, you know, four weeks or so. Um, the last phase of working on the rulebook happened about three or four weeks ago, and I put a bunch of time in that week. Um, I actually forgot to mention that in the update vlog. Uh, that was part of the reason I, I was less productive in August as well, because I suddenly had a big flurry of rulebook work to do, and part of it was um, a lot of work on the Darwin's Journey rulebook, because we're still working on that, because holy cow, that is a challenging beast for sure. Um, most of the rulebook work that I've done, though, um, has been more of the proofing variety where like the rule book is essentially done and the publisher sends it to me and I read it from scratch and I put a bunch of notes in there and, you know, various things like maybe reorder this or this wording's wrong or you missed a period or, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, this example could be better if you added lines or, you know, just things like that. Uh, then I send that off to them and then I rarely do another pass. It's usually just a one and done type thing for each rule book. Occasionally I'll do multiple. Uh, Greg asks, are you coming to Essenspiel 2021? No, I'm not. Um, I would love to. Um, I had a hotel booked for it up until about 
two weeks ago or so. Um, honestly, there's two reasons I'm not coming. The first reason is I'm not sure I even could come. Uh, I live in California in the United States, and I think there are definitely some very real COVID travel restrictions for United States people traveling over to Europe. And the second thing is just a lot of people that I would like to see, I know aren't planning on going. It's an expensive trip. That's a, a long flight from California over to Germany. And I think it would be better uh, for me to not go this year and plan to hopefully go next year. Um, I went back in 2017 and 2018 um, and I skipped 2019 because I just didn't want to go every year because it's expensive and I planned on going last year and well, that didn't happen. And then I plan on going this year and that didn't happen either, but I'm sure I'll make it out to Essen again at some point, hopefully in 22. Um, Alvin says, what did you do with Railroad Revolution uh, map since you have a Railroad Evolution expansion? Did you retain the box or discard it? Oh, I think I just threw that in the trash. <laughs> I'm not super precious with my board game materials. When I get expansions, um, you know, I usually throw the box out or if it's the expansion is the same size box as the original, then I'll throw the original box out and put everything in the expansion box. Um, I think that's what I did for Railroad Evolution, if I remember correctly. And yeah, I didn't see a reason to hold on to the board. I just got rid of it through the recycling, I think. <laughs> uh, let's see. Brad says, because of your videos like Markibo, I've often find I rarely need to read or reference the rulebook. That says as much as it needs to be said about the thoroughness of your work. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that. I, I will say that I sometimes get things wrong and I sometimes omit a thing on accident or maybe even on purpose. I try to call it out if I omit something on purpose. But reading a rulebook after you watch one of my videos is probably still a good idea. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Dragon says, what do you think of Tabletop Simulator, uh, Tabletopia compared to Tabletop Simulator? So many publishers want to use Tabletopia because they can control the content, but personally, I can't stand using the interface. Um, my honest opinion is that Tabletop Simulator is way, way, way better to use from a user perspective. Um, the ability to manipulate things, to copy and paste things, to add text, to um, just interact is just so much better with Tabletop Simulator. Um, and Publishers do have full control over the mods that are published on Tabletop Simulator uh, over, uh, for the mods that they officially put out. Um, it's true that it's a bit of a wild west as far as non-authorized um, uh, mods being put out there, and that is definitely a tricky situation. But I, I personally think that you know if you're going to have a mod out there on Tabletopia, that putting one up for Tabletop Simulator also makes sense because somebody's probably going to make it anyway. So you know, make it yourself as a publisher, and then you do have control over it. You brand it as the official one, and then that's probably the one that people are going to be using as opposed to some of the other ones. Um, yeah, it just that's just a personal thing to me. I get frustrated every time I play Tabletopia, um, but I also have a lot more experience with Tabletop Simulator. But again, I think that's because I actively enjoy playing in that ecosystem. Uh, and, and I do get that, you know, some of the mods that I've played there are, are not official. And, and when I when I enjoy games, I really do try to purchase them after playing them in Tabletop Simulator. And uh, for the most part, uh, many, if not most of the games that I've played there have been games that I either own or, or one of my friends that I'm playing with does own. All right, we have Alvin for the last question. And they say, what uh, do you feel about the new Beyond the Sun cards which have been implemented on BGA? Um, I think they look cool. Um, yeah, in the expansion for Beyond the Sun, there's going to be printings for a couple of the technologies from the original game that you're supposed to swap out. They're essentially kind of a patch fix. One of them is going to get worse, and then one of them is going to get better. It's a buff and a nerf, and I think it's great to see that kind of thing. It definitely leverages the uh, advantage that you get for putting your game up on uh, Board Game Arena, because you can really crunch into the data and see how often certain things are picked, and I think it's awesome to see that Rio Grande is using that data to leverage better development and to smooth things out and um, make the game better. Um, you know, no game is officially, uh, no game is actually done with development. You have to come to the point where you just print the game, but, you know, essentially every game could probably always use a little bit more development, 
and being able to patch some of the cards with an expansion, I think, is a really good idea. All right, that is going to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much to everyone who decided to join in. Um, this has been a fun one. Um, definitely a wide variety of questions there. And uh, uh, it's a bit late in the month uh, for me to be filming this. Uh, honestly, I might do this later on in the month of October as well. I I'm not sure what the date will be, but I will officially announce the time of the next live Q&A vlog in the update vlog that should be coming out in the, the start of October or so. Uh, so yeah, that's going to bring this one to a close. Thanks again for joining in.